Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, remembering Antonin Scalia. And Richard, we're recording this podcast just a few days after the unexpected news that Antonin Scalia has passed away. Before we get into sort of the substantive legacy of Justice Scalia, you two were colleagues at the University of Chicago for several years. For those who didn't know him, never got the chance to meet him, can you tell us a little bit about Nino Scalia, the man? Well, I think what I would say is what most people who have known him would say is that uh, the first thing about him is he's just completely memorable. He's one of these people who knew that he was larger in life and thrived in being it. He came, you could see the picture in the New York Times today, born in New Jersey but raised in a rather ramshackle house in um, Elmhurst, Queens. So he was a guy who was not sort of, shall we say, born to the upper crust. He goes to Georgetown, finishes valedictorian in his class, and then he's off to the Harvard Law School at the time of its absolute peak with a remarkable set of classmates and much to his amazement he's kind of like a cork who keeps on bobbing up nobody could keep him down uh, he's a member of the law review and throughout his career up to the time he came to the university of chicago it was clear that everything was marked by sort of a, an exuberant form of excellence he was a fine lawyer by every account that jones and day uh, in cleveland and then it was he's off to the uh, administration in the ford administration rather goes to the university of virginia then he goes to the ford administration, then he comes to us, then he's off to the second, um, uh, to the D.C. Circuit. Um, I still remember, as well as if it happened yesterday, the workshop he gave when he came to the University of Chicago to do his appointments talk, and it was different from any other workshop you saw either before or since. Uh, what Justice Scalia got in then, he was not that, he was just, he was the head of OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, the president's lawyer, and that's exactly the way he sounded when he talked about executive privilege, the ability of the president to resist demands by Congress that he testify or turn over papers or something else, and he argued the thing as though he were an advocate in open court. With such passion and such eloquence and such conviction, it was really a very strange and wonderful phenomenon to see, and I think even as, as an academic, he was always thinking of himself as a future public official, a future solicitor general, a future judge. He knew he was a man of major abilities, and he knew where he wanted to um, develop them. He was not somebody, I think, who pined for the academic environment, who liked to sit over obscure books writing tomes that nobody else would read. He was a man of action and a man of public affairs. And you know, we kept up one way or another after he left the University of Chicago. In fact, in one of the last things that I just did, and it kind of brings a tear to my eye, is I have two very strong women at the University of Chicago, both of whom want to apply for him for clerkships, and I wrote letters on his on their behalf, and of course the judge that we were talking to is Justice Scalia, I think they went out on Friday or Thursday. I mean, you know, and you realize just how close you are. Um, I take great pride in the fact that I've had, I don't know, probably a dozen students who have clerked for him over the years. We never actually talk about it, but I send the letters in and off the kids go and they do very, very well. 
And so it's kind of an odd bond uh, to have with somebody through this clerkship sort of process that takes place. One year, I actually had two clerks on the on our, of his four with mine. They were in different classes, but what they had in common is both took Roman law. So I thought that was really <laughs> a wonderful kind of tribute to both Roman law and to Nino Scalia to recognize the importance of a Roman law background for somebody who wants to be a clerk for a Supreme Court justice. Richard, contrast for me the world of constitutional law before anti- and Scalia's arrival and the one now that he is deported. Where was his influence really felt most acutely? Well, if you start going back to the Warren Court, uh, the first thing to remember is that the Warren Court did not end when uh, uh, Justice Warren died or left the court in 1969. The most activist years of the United States Supreme Court were probably the first three or four years of the Berger Court, even though Berger himself was one of the famous Republican Minnesota twins who was appointed to his seat by uh, Richard Nixon. And and essentially, freewheeling is a perfectly good description. Uh, What happens is you look around find the kinds of things that you really want to move on and you turn them into constitutional law so that the Warren Court, I guess its most famous opinion, the one that tripped up Robert Bork when he was nominated, was a case called Griswold in Connecticut decided around 1965 in which Justice Douglas and a bunch of other people decide that it is essentially um, unconstitutional to restrict the sale of contraceptives um, in the state of Connecticut. And you know, this is right after the Lochner Revolution uh, in the 19th 1937, where people said the worst thing you want to do is to make the Supreme Court into a super legislature. And then they turn around and they take this innocuous statute and they declare it unconstitutional uh, because of emanations and penumbras from clauses, none of which you can specify. And then, of course, there's Roe v. Wade, and it's the same type of situation. You have every state in the union having a statute or a common law criminal situation with respect to abortion. And Justice Blackman uh, talks to his friends at the Mayo Clinics, decides that, you know, abortions are really an important thing for women's health and then well maybe it's due process maybe it's privacy maybe it's something else but anyhow it's all unconstitutional everybody remembered in the run-up to the argument that there were all sorts of jokes about how utterly futile and fatuous it was for anybody to think that you could get the supreme court to hear an abortion case and bingo the whole thing starts to go over and i think those two cases probably more than any other defined the freewheeling nature of this but it was at the same time for example in the period say between 1960 and 1975, that all of a sudden welfare rights become constitutionalized in some very definite way. Uh, the most important cases of that particular period was a case called Goldberg v. Kelly, which had to do with the constitutionalization of the termination procedures for welfare recipients. But there were probably under the Equal Protection Clause uh, maybe 10 or 15 cases on this particular issue, uh, whereas before 1965, there were absolutely none. And there was a serious question as to whether or not you know, uh, the Constitution required that every school get exactly the same amount of money from the state. Uh, there were constitutional questions having to do with residency and so forth um, as being a barrier to receiving welfare benefits. Um, and, you know, there was even the proposed that the Equal Protection Clause required an equal income policy in the United States. The world was really very fevered at the time. Uh, Justice Rehnquist comes on the court in 71. His role is often underappreciated. And he starts tugging back on it. But the big difference difference between Rehnquist and Scalia is that Scalia came with a worldview uh, that he was very 
forceful and articulating. And essentially, once he got on the court and Rehnquist was the, teach, the, the chief, things started to change. A chief justice regards himself to some extent as a conductor, not as a soloist. Uh, justice Scalia never thought of himself as a conductor. He was always the soloist. So he started to take the ideological baggage and he pushed it much more coherently and much more systematically forward underneath the originalism banner. It's hard to remember, but the term originalism only begins as a word of American constitutional law in 1980. It was an article written by a man named Paul Bresta, who was later the dean of the Stanford Law School, who said, you know, there is this sort of talk going around about this idea of originalism, as if somehow or other originalism would be a deviation from all the accepted kinds of norms. And Scalia, in effect, took something which was a kind of an out-of-the-way, marginal view of constitutionalism and made it absolutely the center of the constitutional debate. I think in many ways his best statement of it was in the Taft lecture that he gave in 1989 at the University of Cincinnati where he called it the lesser of two evils. And I like that particular title because it indicates to you that constitutional interpretation is always a fragile venture and that rather than thinking you could go to certitude, what it does is you try to go to basically calmer waters where you can still from time to time get shipwrecked. And I think that that, in effect, is a pretty strong way to defend originalism. Anybody who thinks that this constitutional perfectionism is always going to be wrong. The world is just too confident, too complicated to be confident that you could achieve that result. And Scalia oftentimes was dogmatic in favor of his own imperfections. It's a kind of an interesting sort of psychological twist. Well, you clearly had a personal affection for Justice Scalia. There's clearly a fair amount of philosophical overlap. Richard, where did the two of you differ? Where did you see the law differently? Oh, I think we had a very profound difference um, on the question of how you do law. Um, Nino Scalia graduated from the Harvard Law School in 1960, and the, the reigning view then was how it is that judges could make the institutional arrangements that were put in place by the New Deal work. And it turns out there's an enormous amount of bad things that you can do through administrative agencies uh, in running the labor system and in running all sorts of other kinds of situations like the public highways or the welfare system and so forth. And the Harvard professors and the Harvard students of that period were interested in incremental adjustments to make things go better. They were kind of Eisenhower Republicans, even if they were Democrats. Um, I come out of law school eight years later, but the difference between the mood of 1960 and the mood of 1968 in the political realm is enormous, and it certainly carried over into law schools. Now there was a sort of a restless dissatisfaction with the status quo. Uh, the breakdown of the uh, sort of Eisenhower consensus ended with the death of uh, John F. Kennedy by assassination in 1963. At this time, the Vietnam War is heating up, the civil rights movement in the South is heating up, the murder of a a Goodwin Schwaney um, in the and there's a third one there in the South um, really transformed everything that was going on in, in the way in which these things were started to put together. So I mean, uh, but this time there's rampant dissatisfaction with everything, and people instead of trying to figure out how it is that you make marginal adjustments, were wondering how it is that you reorganize the world. Um, I was part of that movement. I was never part of the radical side of it, but I never conceived when I came back from England, where I'd studied law for two years, my job was to sort of make things harmonize inside the welfare state. My view was that 
given the difficulties we had, you had to go back and look to first principles. And I was much more willing than Scalia to go to collateral discipline. So to give you but one example, when we were at Chicago, the new rage in academic circles was a field called sociobiology, which essentially was trying to figure out how you use the theories of evolution to explain human psychological traits of one form or another, including sex differences and things like that. And I was very much taken to the field because I thought it gave you a kind of a sort of biological basis for a complicated view of what counts as individual self-interest. And I remember talking to Scalia about it one day, and he just looked at me blankly as if why in the world would any lawyer want to spend his time working about some kind of field like that? And that was because he was thinking about the Supreme Court, and I was sort of thinking about jurisprudence written under the species of eternal truths, and there was a very different kind of emphasis. Um, Oddly enough, when you get to the Constitution, both of these approaches take place and they were very different. And if you you wanted to know, there are certain areas in which we really did have very profound philosophical differences as to how particular constitutional provisions should be interpreted. And where are the areas where those distinctions were most pronounced between the two of you? Well, let me just mention two of them very briefly. I'll, I'll do one and then if you have any questions, we'll go on to the second. The first one has to do with the issue of standing. Uh, what the constitutional text under Article 3 says is the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity uh, of a following sort. And to Justice Scalia, he was very much enamored of an opinion called Frothingham and Mellon decided by Justice Sutherland in 1923, which said in effect that even if you think there's something which is unconstitutional, unless you have a discrete pocketbook interest in the particular issue, you do not have standing under Article 3 in order to challenge it. Uh, So that under this view, uh, all major structural changes in the Constitution, uh, which do not have a disparate impact on one or more person are outside the scope of the court to challenge until somebody with a discrete interest comes up. And in that case, there was a program called the Matrimonial Act in which the states were being required to give monies Rather, the federal government was trying to put into place programs that would be administered through the states where they would start to give assistance to individual women uh, during the course of their pregnancies, for example. And what happens is somebody said, look, this is violation of the spending clause, which only allows you to spend for the, you know, spend tax and spend for the general welfare of the United States, which doesn't mean individual ladies. And, you know, it's a fairly powerful challenge. But the Supreme Court with a conservative justice said, nope, um, there's nothing special about Mrs. Frothingham, nothing special about the state of Massachusetts. Nobody can challenge the program at all. And so what you do then is you, uh, if you're Justice Scalia, you think this is absolutely the right decision. You think about separation of powers. You think about Article 3. And what you decide in effect is that the peculiar status of the federal courts makes it impossible to allow these challenges. Uh, Long before Scalia articulated this view, as he did many times on the Supreme Court, most notably in a case called Lujan, um, I actually came to the actual opposite conclusion. I had studied law in Oxford, and I looked at the text, and I found two things. One, the word standing was not in it, and yet the doctrine standing is used everywhere. And secondly, it says the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity. And to most people, that's just three words that don't mean anything. But equitable jurisdiction meant, amongst other things, the ability of shareholders to enjoin illegal acts done by the officers of a corporation on on the grounds that they were beyond the scope of their charter. And... 
the whole point of the equitable jurisdiction is that you did not have to have a discrete and special interest in order to challenge it. You could challenge it as a representative of the whole. You looked at England and sure enough, they don't have um, uh, Article 3, but they have a standing doctrine, but they allowed the equitable cases. You look to New York State where they have a constitution and they have a, a set of courts, but they don't have an Article 3 problem and they have standing rules and they allow equitable jurisdiction. So why is it that the Supreme Court, when it has equitable jurisdiction, can't do the same thing? And you know, to me, the structural constitution requires some degree of judicial oversight unless you want to overturn Marbury and Madison, which talks about judicial supremacy. And so what you do is I thought that the Scalia position, although it was designed to be an originalist position, was actually wrong originalist and designed to be a textual position, but it was wrong textually. And I have to say I've pretty much lost how the Supreme Court now goes through case after case after case, and they'd never have come to the general proposition that any citizen can challenge any act by any branch of government on the grounds that it's ultra-virus, that is outside the power of the government to do some things, which is the position that I've always taken. So I'm much more of a hawk on standing than he is. And the final point, the other area of sort of major disagreement between the two of you, I believe, was on the question of property rights. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, and this is a very different kind of disagreement. Justice Scalia spent his entire life basically as a public lawyer. He was very comfortable with the administrative state. He had jobs in the OLC, for example, under President Ford. I have never served in government. I've never had a clerkship. I was trained in England. For me, uh, an administrative state is a dose of cold water that I have to understand. I, I recognize its necessity, but I don't treat it in quite that way. Well, often the administrative state gets into real conflict with property rights. And the question then is, just to what extent does the takings clause give you protection? On this issue, our good friend Scalia was really quite opposed to the positions of people like Justice Brennan, who said essentially under the so-called rational basis test, any form of general economic regulation, even if it wipes out a particular person, is just fine. And his major decision was the Penn Central case, which essentially vindicated New York's landmark preservation law under a set of reasons so horrible that it would take an entire show to explain. <laughs> Scalia would never buy into something that outrageous and was therefore an instant improvement. But he was not a property lawyer and when he got to hard property cases uh, like the Nolan case where he broke very important new ground on the so-called doctrine of unconstitutional conditions and the Lucas case where he talked about regulatory takings, his heart was in the right place. These were not decisions which were done with any kind of long-term political preconception as he had in the standing cases. But what happened is, since he wasn't a private lawyer, he fails in the way in which I think most people on the Supreme Court fail today. They all come to the Supreme Court as being judges whose experience is not commercial, it's not with real estate, it's not with any other kind of natural resource or intellectual property. They tend to be administrative lawyers and constitutional lawyers, and they have a very common background. None of them are really, shall we say, comfortable with or fully respect the common law as a source of our inspirations. And I come at it from exactly the opposite point of view and indeed wrote a book called Takings, which essentially says if you understand how the system of private property is put together as a private law matter, you see that its comprehensive nature 
on the right to exclude, the right to possess, the right to use, the right to dispose, the right to get access to public highways is so completely all-pervasive that there is nothing that the government can do by legislation or by taxation or by regulation or by changing liability rules which does not effectuate or implicate the takings clause of the Constitution. His off the record view of that when I put this thing out in 1985 was that this was a bizarre view on how you read it. But interestingly enough, a comprehensive theory means that you have much more massive levels of judicial oversight, but you have many fewer awkwardnesses that you do under the current law, where the distinction is so-called between a regulatory taking, i.e. where the government doesn't go into possession but restricts what you can do, and a physical occupation where it goes in. That line becomes very gossamer, and in the one case, it's virtually a per se compensation rule, and on the other side, there's virtually no compensation at all. Scalia in a case called Lucas said, you know what, I'm going to apply the physical rules where there's a complete economic wipeout of the property interest in there so there's nothing economically viable that you can do. That was decided 20 years ago over that, 1993 I think it was, and to this day nobody exactly knows what it means and the reason you'll never get it clear is that the distinction they're trying to make is utterly inconsistent with the basic principle of property law which says that the protection of the entirety um, extends to the protection of each fraction of that entirety as against outside interference. Otherwise, you can never create multiple interests in property. This is highly technical stuff. Um, you start with it in Roman law and work forward. And Justice Scalia did not start from the technical base. What he did is he started from the view, I know the takings clause has got to have some clout, but if I read it the way in which this fellow Epstein wants to read it, then I'm never going to escape takings cases. And that is inconsistent with his view that judicial restraint was appropriate and respect for democratic institutions should be put at a far higher level than I would put it. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.